Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Friendliest Town chronicles a startling tale of institutional racism working against the dedicated efforts of the first African-American police chief, and that would be Kelvin Sewell, in the small town of Pocomoke on Maryland's lower eastern shore. The national debate over policing generally misses a critical point, how embedded law enforcement is in the political power structure of this country. Historically, this has situated law enforcement at a critical juncture in conflicts regarding race, equity, and politics. And I'll leave it there because that's what this film is about and a lot more than that. So we're going to get into that. The friendliest town uh, and uh, we're joined today by one of the co-directors, and that would be Stephen Janis, as well as the subject of the film, and that would be Kelvin Sewell. To both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks for having us. We appreciate Thanks for having us. us. Well, I will start uh, with you, Stephen. I know you work out of Baltimore, and you have a, a real a news program. Tell me a little bit about how you how you heard about the situation. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I'd written a book with Kelvin when he retired from the Baltimore City Police Department. He had gone down to Pocomoke to work to try to institute a new type of policing. And when he called me one day and said I was going to be fired, I was stunned. And I was working at a nonprofit called The Real News Network, which actually had quite a flexible sort of editorial approach. So when I asked, can we go down there, which is three and a half hours from Baltimore, they said, yeah, sure, I was surprised. And so we ended up covering it. And that's when it started, was just with this idea to fire Kelvin for reasons that were really uh, unclear at the time. Kevin, how did you, what's your journey uh, in terms of becoming the first African-American police chief in the town of Pocomoke? Well, when I first took the job, I didn't know I was going to be the first African-American police chief. I came, I, when I went to Pocomoke from Baltimore City, I took some of my skills I learned from Baltimore City to Pocomoke City. And I found out that they were like maybe 30 years behind in town down in a small town. So what I did was I started institutionalizing some of my skills to Pokemon and they liked it and they thought the ideas I brought down there were like, wow, this guy is like doing a good job. So they decided when the police chief retired, let's give him a shot as police chief. And that's how I got it. What was your background before you got there? Um, I was a homicide sergeant in Baltimore City. Um, I worked homicides. I worked um, um, homicides, suicides, suspicious deaths, DOAs, kidnapping, extortions. I did it all. And so what I didn't want when I went to Pocomoke City was to repeat the same thing that happened in Baltimore City. What I wanted to do was have an idea of how to stop the shootings, how to stop the homicides. And when I went to Pocomoke, I looked at their crime history and found out they were experiencing a lot of homicides in a small town like that. So my goal was to try to stop that. How, what, what can I do to stop the shootings and the killings in a small town in Pocomoke City? And how would you describe your approach to policing? Uh, we see it in the film, but for people who are interested, there's, policing is it's it's an art as much as it is a science, yes. right? In terms of how you police, says an awful lot about you as a police chief. What what sort of instructions or culture you're building for your for the for the men and women who work for you, and also in the community, how does that match up with the community that you find yourself in? So, briefly, just. Describe what your philosophy, what you, how, what kind of a culture were you trying to build within the Pocomo Police Department? Well, I wanted to try to build a culture that where you got community with the police and vice versa, the police work with the community. 
I didn't want um, a one-sided thing with it's us against them. I've seen that too much in Baltimore City with the police were like us against the people on the streets. I wanted everyone to work together. So when I first went to Pokemon, the first thing I did was walk through the streets and look at some of the, the different, the culture and what was going on and, and, and the, the problems they were having. When I walked through the streets, they didn't know who I was at the time. I was already, already hired by the police department as a lieutenant. And I didn't want them to know who I was. I wanted to see for myself what was going on. So before I went to the police department, the first day I entered uh, Pokemon City, I went around the neighborhoods, some of the rougher neighborhoods. I did research and looked at some of the neighborhoods and finally figured I didn't want to repeat what was going on in Baltimore City with the number of arrests they were doing on a daily basis. So the main thing was work with the community and the community work with the police department because by working together, we can uh, end crime in Pokemon City. That's what I want as my goal. Stephen, uh, let's, if if you can, or if you want to do a, a sort of a, a, a demographic breakdown, some kind of a sort of give us some context for the, for this particular yeah. part of, part of um, Maryland, but also um, just generally about the city itself. Well, yeah, the city, the city itself is, is 4,000, roughly 4,000 residents, pretty much evenly divided between African-American and white residents. And it's in a part of the state that is somewhat poorer than the rest of the state. The Lower Eastern Shore was actually also, historically speaking, you know, the home of Harriet Tubman and the home of slavery. So it's it's a different, it's a rural community, um, you know, a lot of agriculture, chicken farming is is big down there. So it's quite different, like from a Baltimore city or the Washington metropolitan area. It's kind of like, as we always say, there's a huge bridge between the peninsula and, and the state that you cross over. And it's always like kind of going back in time because things are different on the Eastern shore. And so it's also Worcester County is also home to Ocean City, which is part of the tourist part of the town, the state. But but tr- most, most I think most essentially, Pocomoke is a typical small rural town that is equally divided between black and white residents. Yes. And and was there a reputation attached to the town or was it just well, sort of in general terms an area that had, as you said, well, kind of locked back in a particular time? Period? Because you had, you know, because you, you it, it was a slave part that, you know, this, Maryland was divided, part was slave, part wasn't. And because it was part of the, you know, there were a lot of conflicts that still linger to this day. For example, in Talbot County, which is just up the road from Worcester, there's a statue called the Talbot Boys. It is still on the courthouse lawn that was erected to commemorate the Talbot Boys who were fighting for the Confederacy. So there is still a lot of conflict down there over something that, you know, we think is being settled. But and and there's still remnants of that history. And, you know, I think the, the town itself, we interviewed some residents who had lived there for like 80, 90 years, we're talking about how recently in the 50s and the 60s, you couldn't walk in the front of a store if you were African-American. You couldn't sit in the theater on the first floor. You know, if you wanted to get a sandwich, you had to go in through the back door. So there was stuff that was very recent that, you know, there was Jim Crow and things like that that had existed there and 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 still kind of lingered in the air there a little bit. Well, I want to get to the sort of the heart of the documentary story here, uh, Kelvin, okay. your story. Um, but before we sort of dive into that specific part of it, uh, you moved to the community, right? Once yes. you got the job. Yes. Right. And it seems like in the documentary, it seems like you were embraced in, initially into this position. It seemed like there was a lot of community support for you. And correct me if I'm wrong. Where, where Did you feel like there was a difference between the reaction in the African-American community as opposed to the predominantly white community? Or did you feel welcomed when you first got there? Um, well, not, not, not when I first got there, because nobody knew who I was. 
So basically what I wanted to do was try to get that um, that relationship with the community, whether they were African-American or Caucasian. It didn't matter to me because my job was to keep everybody safe in Pokemon City. Once I started my approach by having the officers get out the cars and walk for patrol through the neighborhoods and get to know the people and work with the community and set up meetings and stuff like that, it kind of like started, you know, people start saying, hey, the police department did care about us. They're not just riding around with their windows rolled up. They're out here walking and talking to us. That's what worked, you know. A lot, like a, a lot of police officers didn't want to do it at first, but then they, um, because they, they didn't think the people would uh, even talk to them. But I had complaints that they wouldn't speak back. So I told the officers, keep talking to them, get paid to speak, you know. And then they opened up to us. And if a crime was committed in Pokemon City, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook. I knew who it was the first five or ten minutes because the people in the community would call me and tell me. After a, a period of walking through the neighborhood, getting to know people, the, the time started turning. The changes, changes started turning. People started believing in the police department. And people started um, relying on us, and that friendship developed. And it went, it went, it went over well. Well, let's let's. <laughs> I want people to see the film. The film is called "The Friendliest Town." It, it is a compelling documentary, and one of the things that makes it so is how unfettered the story itself is it's it's complicated it gets complicated as as we as the story as the film moves forward but it's at the at its essence it's a pretty straightforward film about race and a community that seems unwilling not just unwilling to change its its perspective on on race but vengeful about the idea of even doing that is it, uh, Stephen? Am I being fair? Is that? Oh, I think you're being totally fair. I mean, I think it was yes. as as it as it <laughs> as the film evolve, evolves. You'll see that you know the the white power structure in the council was controlled by white um, you know people in the town was just not accustomed to the African Americans in that community coming to council meetings and demanding to be heard and demanding really an explanation for how the town was run at, at, at essence, because when they fired Kelvin, I think it, it, it basically woke up that community. And, and when they started to fight back, it sort of unearthed an ugliness that, that I think people acknowledge in the film sort of sat beneath, you know, the surface, but this made it sort of come to the surface. And, and those tensions suddenly became like, you could see them literally evolving in the council meetings where, you know, people were literally confronting each other. And it was, it was really both troubling, but but also I think very fascinating to see how how that community rising up caused such anger and tension in the white community. Yeah. Well, you, Stephen, you jumped ahead a little bit, and I'm glad you oh, did. Okay, sorry. You no, no, no. I'm glad you did because okay, that's this is sort of where we I was going, and that is Kelvin. So well, you're you're fired in the midst of what appears to be a very successful regime as the chief of police. You're doing well. Crime rate is down. A murder rate is that everything is going really, really well. Right. Okay. And then all of a sudden you find out you're under investigation. Well, go ahead, please tell us that part of the story where. Because of the success with the community and the police working together, you know, crime went down to a 30 year all time low. I was so proud to the fact that we, we haven't had a single homicide in the entire five years I was there from Lieutenant Captain Chief. That made me most proud because people believed in what we were doing community did, and they decided to work with us instead of, instead of against us. And um, when one of my when one of my detectives was treated so badly in the Washington County Sheriff's Task Force, he was assigned there. And he was, um, I mean, so many things happened to him. And he, 
decide to file an EEOC complaint. And that's pretty interesting. Then they call me in and say, we want you to file him. Can't do it. That's his right. And I, and I try to explain some of the EEOC laws and the, and the laws of the Bill of Rights, LEOBR laws. You just can't fire a police officer. They have rights. And they didn't know they didn't know what these laws were. They didn't experience these laws. They just wanted me to fire them. And I, and I had to stick by doing things legal. And because of my refusal to fire the detective, they ultimately fired me. And then they fired the detective. That led to the um, the community being upset for me being fired, you know, and they, um, the protests and everything else went on. And ultimately, they called in a friend, spot security to come in and find something to charge me with. They, and they tried like six or seven different things before they found this accident in 2014 after I was gone. They found like six or seven other attempts to try to charge me. That didn't work. So they figured, let's try with this, this accident that occurred in 2014. And like I said, I was already done. And I guess they worked with that. They worked with that. And that was like, you know, couldn't believe it was happening to me. You know, everything was done properly on the scene of the accident. And still, I was on the investigation by the head state prosecutor for an illegal crime I didn't even commit. Yeah. So it was kind of like mind blowing to me. And it goes from there. I, I really want people to see this for because of how this story unfolds. So what you just described, Kelvin, and how this plays out, uh, it's one of those, and you hear it, you know, far too often. You wouldn't believe it if you if it wasn't true, right? right. This, and I, so this is where I want to a little bit dive a little bit into kind of structural questions. Looking back on it, why do you think they hired you? Well, I think they needed some experience down there. I don't think at that point it was a it was anything to do with race. I mean, hiring somebody African American, they had an African American police officer there. But I think they needed somebody with some experience to come down there and try to clean the place up. They knew my background as a homicide detective. They knew um, my my work. They checked me out. I know they did. They knew the, the references and everything. They knew I wasn't just gonna come down and just have a good job, another job, and just do nothing. Well, my job was to work, work, continue to work to make that place safe. So I think they wanted somebody with some experience to come down there. How can I say it? It was so much crime down there to try to stop the crime that was going on in that town. Right. If you had done the same thing that you just described, going down there, lowering the crime rate, and done it differently, done it in a way that was more in keeping with the way that the police departments had been behaving before you got there, do you think you'd still have a job there? In other words... The way you went about it was as as someone who was concerned about the community, bringing the community and locating the police inside a community so it wasn't an adversarial relationship. Do you think well, that would have impacted how they, 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 they looked at you as you're doing your job? Well, the the people was, it was, it was already set in their minds how the police officers were down there, how they would react to the community. And it was no relationship between the community yeah. and, and, and the police. I, I don't know because my, my idea is different. My okay. idea is, I'm sorry, go ahead, Stephen. No, I was just going to say because I think, Kelvin, you know, we had, a, we had an interview with someone who was, you know, the, when that drug task force tried to get her to talk, you know, to, I guess, accused Sewell, chief Sewell of a crime. Uh, and that went back to 2012. That went back before all the stuff happened with Savage, before all, you know, some of the things that they said they behind the scenes they fired him for. And I think that was a lot to do with the fact that Kelvin was trying to help people and it didn't help the Worcester County task force, drug task force, like to come to town and arrest everybody. And it, I, I do think, I'm, I'm just throwing this in there because from my perspective, that was an important point in the film was that 
I don't I I think part of what really upset them was he he was bad for their business, you know. They were not he he wanted he would help people like Jerry Fish the person that we we interviewed and realize that the dr- war on drugs was not really achieving anything productive and that really was bad for the Worcester County Drug Task Force which incidentally were the highest paid police officers in the county. So they're, they he was screwing with their business and I I firmly believe as a filmmaker that that's part of why Kelvin was targeted. But but also Let's be honest. The war on drug has not often been about the about drugs. It's no. been about it's Money. been about what we're talking about. We're t- we're talking about the targeted communities, the way in which we sentence people. There's so many things about the war on drugs that are inherently institutionally racist. Yeah, I mean, and, they, they they would go into Pocomoke's backburn, which was African American, but they wouldn't spend much time in Ocean City, which was mostly populated with white people coming down from Washington D.C. or Baltimore. So yeah, yeah. Right. Well, in just a couple of minutes I have left with you, I, I there there is something that that's been on my mind a lot. I'd like to hear what you think. It is related to this film, and that is there's this idea that it's just I can't get it out of my head, and that is one of the basic problems we have when we're talking about race is the refusal of of us to acknowledge the facts, right? We refuse as a country, generally speaking, to acknowledge that in 1619, people were brought here to be enslaved. 1619, 155 years before we even thought about an American revolution to establish America, 150 years of an embedded culture in our country, in what we now know as America where people were enslaved. And that's how that the fact that we can't acknowledge that and say from there, this is what we do now is to me, the thing that just drives me crazy. I, I, I mean, Kelvin, if you, if that's, is that sound, what do you, what do you think? When, well, when I, I totally agree, you know, and then sometimes you look at the state, what's going on today with the, um, with the uh, rioting in the, at the Capitol. Imagine if it was like hundreds and hundreds of um, thousands of people African-American people going and riding, riding at the Capitol. You think it would have been handled the same? Yeah. I don't think so. No, you know? I know. I, I thought the same thing. What if, it, what if it had been Barack Obama and there had been people from the Nation of Islam and some oh. Black Panthers in that crowd and they had stormed the Capitol? How do you think that would have gone? A lot of shootings, homicides, and arrests. Yeah. I think we know. We know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Stephen, uh, yeah, anything do you want to comment on? Well, any I mean, of- I mean, I think you can see it in the film. You know, this is a crime that we've committed as as a country that we refuse to acknowledge, and and it makes us irrational because yeah. the Pocomoc City Council literally destroyed everything that Kelvin did over their refusal to acknowledge the role of racism in their decision making. Right. So you can see this country's irrational response to to and and our refusal to acknowledge. Just what you were saying comes out and, and it's so destructive because it comes out in ways that, you know, like in Kelvin's case, where it just not only destroyed what happened with the community, but destroys him. So yeah, you're right. And that lack of acknowledgement is why we keep making destructive decisions. Exactly. We're in an irrational place now and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and more so than we were even for before four years ago. We're, I agree. We're more irrational now and we're taking and, and, um, 45% of the country believes that this person who was our former president, our former president is infallible. Yep. And that is a frightening right. idea, right? Well, he cannot say anything that's not true, even despite right. the fact, right. yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, he's an inveterate liar. So I, yep. yeah, so th- we are in a weird place right now. And I, I think this is why a, a film like yours, the friendliest town 
is important for people to watch. It is a it's a small it's a small part of a very yeah. large picture, but mm -hmm. it is an important window into that world. Well, you know, Mike, what what I like about what Stephen did in, in, in this um in this documentary was how he got out the fact that people talked about police reform all over the country. Well, what Stephen was able to prove in this documentary was we were doing police reform in Pocomoke City. It just yeah. wasn't a, it just wasn't um accepted by the uh Caucasian, the Caucasian government down there. They wanted other means of the justice to be done, which was wrong justice. So I think that was most important to me in this documentary to show that we were act, practicing police reform and it was working. And today, that's what the United States want. They want police reform. And the documentary pointed that out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both. Thank you, Kelvin. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, the film, again, is called The Friendliest Town. And we've been talking with the subject of the film, Kelvin Duell, as well as one of the co-directors of the film, Stephen Janis, and also want to acknowledge, and also the other co-director, Taya Graham, uh, yep. for your work here and for your continuing service, uh, by the way, Kelvin, for your continuing public service. Thank you for that service. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Thanks both. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music